we need to look at this as an international security issue and realize that it doesn't stop at our borders. That as much as we want to say that you know, the Second Amendment is our right, our actions impact the rest of the world. And we need to start talking about what our responsibility is and the role that our lax laws play in promoting and continuing trafficking. Welcome to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflone. And we're going to talk about guns because that seems to be a thing people like to talk about right now. What do you think, JJ? We've been wanting to kind of do a podcast on sort of the, the triangle of criminality that happens in human trafficking where you've got the trafficking of drugs, the trafficking of firearms slash weapons, and the trafficking of humans. Because when we've talked, when we've done our legal based podcasts, and we've discussed sort of where the language came involving human trafficking, it's always it's it's come from drugs and firearm trafficking laws. So there's already this presupposition that the trafficking of humans is is very very similar to the trafficking of of weaponry and drugs. The problem is, and why Seth and I have held off on this, is that we are not, uh, shall we say, gun experts. I was on the rifle team at my high school for a week and a half uh, before I got mono and quit. Seth, I don't know how, I mean, I presume you've gone, you're, you're a white Western male. I presume at some point you've shot something. I've shot a gun a few times. I went hunting. I once wrote an article about the wonders of the Second Amendment and sent it to a far-right Christian identity publication. As kinda one gl- does. Kind of glad I ended up not publishing it. <laughs> yeah, different backgrounds. But I think uh, one of one of the best people that we could bring on is, is a dear friend of mine who I think is just excellent, uh, Ky- Kyle Ann Hunter, who, who I will try to refer to. I know in academic terms you go by Kyle Ann, but I have a feeling i'm going to screw up and call you kai a bunch that's fine we're among so friends you call me kai here yay um and so maybe kai since since kai is kind of our resident gun expert uh, as i told her when we were doing the pre-show prep whether she wanted to be or not i think she's sort of become the, one of the gun experts actually i think not just at corbell or or within colorado but i think sort of publicly you're kind of a public figure when it comes to guns academia discussing it and sort of the public discourse i mean i definitely you've trended on twitter i feel like you're pretty boss so yeah i was trending on twitter the other day that was kind of cool i never saw that happen before but um it was it i guess it was for good reasons because when certain people think that you're bad it's a good thing if that makes sense um (laughs) <laughs> do, you, do they send you a gift when you trend on Twitter? Like, do they give you a mug? <laughs> I no, would like I can't even get verified. What? Um, <sighs> but you know. <laughs> well, here with 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 that. So now that you know that she's a pretty big deal, maybe Kai, do you want to introduce yourself? And sure. Um, thanks for having me on. This is super exciting. I've been a long time fan, and I think it's really important to bring a lot of these conversations out of sort of the whether it's the high ethereal academia or what we think of as more fringe groups and into um, conversations that we have every day because trafficking impacts us all the time. So a little bit about me. I am apparently a resident gun expert, which is not something I necessarily sought out to be 
but it's something that sort of was a confluence of my life. Um, I grew up shooting a lot of skeet and sporting clays and around the sporting gun culture as a big part of who I was um, and who my family was. And it was a large part of my identity. And it was always something that was both very fun and also sort of family bonding time. Uh, Also grew up hunting and it was instilled as this is a way both to procure procure food, but also it was done a lot in, you know, communing with nature and responsibilities for conservationism. I then joined the Marine Corps after uh, college and I flew a big flying gun in combat, which is also known as the Cobra helicopter and spent a lot of time shooting things like M16s and M4s, which are the military version of the civilian AR-15. And more recently, it in the wake of a lot of what we've seen in this country insofar as mass shootings and gang violence and gun violence within the home have gotten really involved with being an advocate for gun reform. And it comes from my experience with growing up in a gun culture and then going off and fighting wars with guns and seeing the effects of guns on the enemy, on my friends, and really being focused on the fact that we need to change our discourse around what guns are and why we have them and why they own them. And myself and a few other veterans have started the Vets for Gun Reform movement, which is really predicated around the idea that, yes, we can respect Second Amendment rights, and yes, we understand that guns aren't all evil, horrible, and scary, but we really need to change our way of talking about them and what it means to own them and why we want to own them and what our responsibility is for those rights. So hopefully that's a little bit about me. I've like, I also study military policy, which indirectly influences a lot of firearm laws because a lot of firearm laws are driven by the way that countries view their militaries. And so a lot of access stuff I can talk about too. That's me. Whatever else you want to know about me, just ask. Yeah. I was going to say Kai is also a PhD student here at the University of Denver Corbell School. She just has to defend her diss and then she's free, which yes. is like triple impressive. Also, she's, she's really, she's, she's really good at drinking bourbon. So like all positive things. And I have a corgi. Yeah. All like basically how you're not president already. I, I don't know. Um, we Agnes would be president, not me. That's true. The corgi would be president. For, I mean, just think of how cute she'd look at the swearing-in ceremony wearing a little tri-cornered hat. What, what's interesting, I think, about all three of us being here is that we're all three people who, even though I, I don't have a ton of experience with, with shooting guns, I grew up with a father, um, a godfather, and a um, now cousins and numerous people in law enforcement. So I always grew up with having guns in the home and people who used guns as part of their job, right? Uh, so I think it's interesting that we're, we're all kind of from pro-gun initial households for different reasons. Mine came from a law enforcement should have them and no one else perspective. Seth, you're coming out of a rather interesting conservative tradition. Well, like most things, I try to find a middle ground, which means I can either relate to everyone or be disliked by everyone. <laughs> can I... Can I interject something really quickly like the term pro-gun i feel like is 
I mean, I think we all know what it means. You know, mm. it, you know, it's something that, you know, for all of us, it meant that we grew up around guns. But I feel like pro-gun has gotten co-opted in a, a way where it's like you're pro-gun or anti-gun in the same way that in, for example, the abortion debate, people disparagingly use the words pro and anti. So that, you know, they say, well, the opposite of pro-life means you're anti-life. You know, or the people who are on the other side saying you're pro-choice means you're anti-choice, which neither of those things are necessarily true. And so I think that rather than saying pro-gun, which is, you know, we need to say, you know, we grew up in a, a culture that understood what guns were. I think it's something that's very important that has a respect for guns, that had a discourse around guns, that has a familiarity with guns. And I think that's going to help open up you know, to listeners who may be wary of guns a little more, that it's not that we grew up saying, like, you know, guns for everybody because you all need to walk around armed. But it was more, maybe we did, I, maybe some of us did, I don't know everyone here, but, you know, but that it was a, a culture that didn't see them as in, in and of themselves something that was awful and scary. And I don't know if there's a better word, but I think that, um, you know, something that I've been trying to be very cognizant of is how I talk about firearms and their role in our society. Well, agreed. The, the terminology doesn't really help these days. Like you've been talking about gun control as if we don't have any or ever will not have any. It's not you have gun control or you have no gun control. We have regulations and laws. Therefore, we have some degree of gun control. And that's something we, you know, in the in the Vets for Gun Reform movement, we're very cognizant of, of choosing the word reform rather than control. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who are trying to put control in our mouth and say, like, we want gun control. We want reform, which is we want to reform the way we talk about the conversation, which is really important that we have discussions like the one we're having today where the conversation isn't just about, you know, it's my right America. The conversation also includes what are the second, third, fourth, fifth order effects of guns in this country. You know, that they're not just limited here now anymore because we have international trade, both, you know, licit and illicit, that we have these cartel networks. And so reform was very intentional that we want to reform the conversation that we're having. And JJ, uh, before we get any further, uh, what are some of the topics that we are targeting for today? So in particular, I, I say it's probably uh, a twofold, as, as they say in academia, a two-finger question <laughs> that we're, we're dealing with today, which is, one, how it is that drug trafficking, firearms trafficking and the trafficking of human beings, how these three things are linked. How, how it is that historically they've been linked, how it is that within organizations they're linked in terms of guns being used as currency, that sort of thing. And then the second part, which I think is a little bit more U.S.-focused, and you know, why is it that sort of U.S.-based gun laws which is which is why we have Kai here because I have no idea what's legal or illegal, uh, and I would just be googling and lying to all of you out there listening to this. But how how those gun laws impact trafficking? 
and impact trafficking rates specifically of humans. So while while we were we are going to touch on I think kind of briefly on on of the drug portion of that three prong drug trafficking for a lot we're going to mention it as a side. I feel like in previous podcasts where we've talked about cartels or we've talked about drug trafficking more directly i think we've done a better more robust job and if we were to talk about all three parts of sort of this like illicit markets triangle we'd be here for like six hours and i don't don't know about you but mama wants to have some pasta and wine later i know (laughs) i don't know if i want to talk about cocaine and slavery all night so maybe maybe to start us off i'll talk about how human trafficking firearm trafficking and drug trafficking. So those are listed as the top three criminal enterprises internationally in terms of money generation. These are the these are the big market businesses. And as always, guys, we'll be linking you to everything we cite. We'll link you um, to the organization Kai works with in short reform. So you'll have you'll have a chance to kind of go on and tweet and do what it is what you do. But talking specifically now about how there's been this look that, okay, well, these are the three things that generate the most money. Well, generate the money for who? Who's profiting from these three illicit markets? That's a complicated question. Because so directly, it's going to be the people who are most involved in illicit markets. So we've got cartels and gangs, which Again, we've talked about in a previous podcast. But then we also have sort of terrorist organizations or fringe political groups or ideological groups who are benefiting from the selling or buying of these th- within these three illicit markets because this is a dark market. This isn't something you have taxes on. This isn't something that you're participating directly in. But then we also have some sort of direct markets, markets that would be considered, I think, non-illicit that are benefiting from the buying and selling of um, men, women, and children, but also drugs and guns. The problem is, is that turning the selling of men, women, and children into a acceptable market, very, very difficult and involves, there's, there's no way to do it legally. So instead you have to have the veneer of legality over it and you're at constant risk of raids, of people escaping, of people coming in to attempt rescue missions with drugs. It's the same deal. Right, you have to do this on a shadow market where you just hope you never get caught. Guns, I think you can be a little bit more open with in terms of people buying and selling them directly. I don't know, Kai, if you want to, yeah, comment um, on that. So, I mean, the the gun market itself, like the the firearm market, is a large market in the in the U.S. I don't know exactly where it ranks, but you make a lot of money selling guns, and there are legitimate. It's number three. It's number three under under humans and drugs. Okay, yeah. So for for that that side of it, but I'm thinking more like for you know we have legitimate firearm manufacturers in the U.S. that are you know that are formal corporations that pay their taxes and do all the quote unquote right things that you can do. Um, but one of the one of the particulars about the firearm markets that makes it different from a lot of other markets, and I think. Especially when we talk about markets that have goods that or markets that sell goods that have a large impact in society. So like buying a you know, a pair of sunglasses probably isn't a big deal. It doesn't matter if you give them to somebody else because they're a pair of sunglasses. It doesn't matter. But if we look at um, firearms, they're kind of treated the same way. In a lot of states it's illegal to actually track who buys them and then what happens to them after that. 
Um, and I would contrast that to something like, so it's, but it's a legal market to sell guns in a, you know, in a federally licensed firearm dealer. But there are lots of other ways to buy guns that aren't federally licensed firearm dealers. And it's really easy to sell guns without any record of where they're going. So, for example, in Colorado, where we are right now, it's actually illegal to register firearms or to keep a list of who buys them. And so I can go in and buy an AR-15 from a federally licensed firearm dealer, new one, just fine, pass a background check, no problem, probably actually even get some crazy discount because I'm a veteran and they're like, woohoo, America. And so I can, I can do that. But then once I own it, like it, it can get traced, but like they may keep an inventory with serial numbers so they know it was sold there. But other than my receipt of sale, so like if I paid for it with a credit card, there's a credit card receipt saying I bought it. After that, there's no record that I own it. And so I can go sell it to, let's say that JJ is going to be really nefarious and want to traffic people in. I, I mean, obviously. It. Clearly, that's why she does this. No. <laughs> Um, but I can sell, I can sell this AR to JJ and she can pay me cash for it. I can charge her whatever I want. And there's no required record of transfer. And so I think you contrast this to something like a car, like a motor vehicle where because the fact that motor vehicles can be deadly, you know, that people do end up killing people in car crashes the government and states in particular decided like, eh, it's probably a good idea to keep track of who actually owns that, who it's registered to, you know, because they can be bad. And we want people to have certain requirements to be able to drive cars and to own cars and, you know, to have insurance on them and all this stuff. But for firearms, it's actually illegal in a lot of states to do that. And so though they're a legitimate market insofar as being a firearms manufacturer is a legitimate industry and have been a federally licensed firearm dealers legitimate business once it leaves the gun shop and leaves that hands there's no way of tracing where it goes so it makes it really easy to use as either currency in illicit markets so i can say like hey jj if you give me a bunch of people to come clean my house i will give you a gun and now you can use that to go you know strong arm more people into coming across the border or whatever you want to do it um in cartels it's used frequently to say hey we want drugs because then i can sell them you know uh -huh. if i say you're a drug you know you're a member of a drug cartel i say i want you know cocaine and i'm going to sell that as a profit because i've got enough you know grad students who want to stay awake all night long mm -hmm. um, <laughs> i love these examples guy i can say well, in real life here let's keep it yeah home you know, I can say, yeah. hey, I'll give you an AR so that you can defend yourself against any of your rival gangs if you keep a, you know, a supply of coke coming to me that I can then sell at a profit. And so it's, it's guns really work at this interesting intersection because of the laws and because we can, there are so many loopholes that we can take advantage of in this country that it's really easy, you know, to take something that's illegal licit taxpaying industry and funnel it into the black market really quickly. And I think, I think that that's interesting because in the past, one of the conversations that, that we've sort of had is how does the funding of human trafficking work? 
Because there are some schemes within human trafficking that I think are fairly straightforward monetarily. So take debt bondage, for example. If we're looking at, say, maybe um, clay brick manufacture in India, where we have a family that has generationally owned, in quotations, another family is using them to produce an item that is then sold at market. And then that family that is in the owner position is just profiting from what the um, family held in enslavement is producing. But if you're a buyer of those bricks, you don't necessarily know that that's a family held in bondage as opposed to a family held in exploitation as opposed to a family paid fairly. And so that's a pretty easy, I think, process tracing money-wise. It gets a little bit more complicated, I think, with things like when we're talking maybe about sex trafficking or the trafficking of people internationally as opposed to within country, because then it becomes a, well, where did that initial funding come from, I think is the thing. I mean, we've talked about how how people are, are relatively cheap on the international market, but so where does that initial investment of 20 grand come from? How do you How do you get this money and how do you transfer that money, say, from Canada to Zimbabwe with no one noticing? that there's a mass amount of money switching or, or going across international borders. I think all three of us have lived, yeah, all three of us have lived abroad for various periods of our life. And so I think we've all dealt with the problem of getting money from the U.S. into those areas and then getting money out of those areas back into the U.S. is very difficult. I just had on my taxes last year them asking me a little notice about like, so where did all this money from China come from? What were you doing, young JJ, <laughs> that you have all this RMB? What's going on? So, but like how, how that money gets transferred, I think the answer that, that's being suggested, not just by Kai, but by a lot of the stuff that I'm going to send, y'all can see in the, in the citations down below, is that it's not money that's being transferred. It's firearms. And I think, you know, that, that's something that it becomes very lucrative because there's, you know, I would say most countries, and I don't, I won't say all because I can't say that authoritatively right now, but like most countries have much tighter restrictions on both the manufacturer and the purchase, I mean, as well as the import on, um, you know, of firearms in their countries. And so firearms become something that is really easy to use as currency. And it also helps because, you know, it's not money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually harder to trace specifically because we uh, several states you know prohibit the registration of firearms so there's no way to know who you know who actually you know bought them and i think that that's it's so strange to me that it's it's a physical item you know money money is often like this intangible thing right it sits in your Venmo account you don't see it but a gun is a tangible thing a person is like an entity that exists in reality. So you're trading a one physical thing for a physical being, like a one for one. And that's a very, I think, scary, strange thing that is just, it's literally the, if I were to try to like get Seth by trading beer cans, make Seth come and have to like fix my computer for me via that transition. And that just seems, I don't know. It just, it seems, I think it's just, it's more real than sort of the intangibility of money it's it's literally bartering for for lives but i'm just i'm struck by how i i get within the u.s 
I think that all of the sort of recent conversation about mass shootings in the U.S. has made it clear that it's easy within the U.S. to get weaponry. But how easy is it to then move firearms outside of the U.S., outside of the country? And I do recall that is an export of ours, uh, illicitly, correct? Yes, it is. It's one of our major (laughs) exports. Yeah. I mean, so there's just that, you know, it's exported, but it's also, it's, I mean, depending on where, what we're talking about outside of the U.S., like, it's not that hard to move. But I think, you know, Trinidad and Tobago is a great example of this, where there are no gun manufacturers inside of Trinidad and Tobago, and there are... It's illegal to buy guns inside of Trinidad and Tobago, yet they're having a huge violent gun crime increase. And it's all through the cartels. So there are, if you look at a map, maybe you can include like a map of where Trinidad and Tobago is Mm -hmm. because it's this confluence of like Venezuela, it's right off the coast of Venezuela. Um, And then you've got like Miami that's not that far away either. And so it's, it's a big hub for drug cartels. You know, insofar as moving drugs from South America into the United States. And it's not hard when all of these transactions take place literally out on the open ocean that you have guys who can go buy firearms legally in Florida, take a speedboat out of the dock in Miami, meet some guys in the middle of the ocean, trade drugs for guns, and sail back or speedboat back, I guess they're not really sailing. They don't have sails on them, but it's not hard. Like it, and they're small. And the thing is when you look at, you know, especially when you're looking at AKs and handguns, like they're light, they're easy to carry. They're easy to break down and put back together. You know, they're not hard to physically move. And because this stuff's happening out in international waters, there's also, from a legal aspect, like, who really has jurisdiction over? It was a legally purchased gun. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to... Like, where, where, like there's, it's, it's a, it becomes a really hard nut to crack when it comes down to, you know, the legality of it. It's things like it is, you know, it's legal to fly with firearms as well, as long as you declare them. And there was, I, in the Philippines recently, like, U.S., U.S. citizens would get on planes, they declare they have a firearm, because they're allowed to fly with firearms, check them in the luggage, go off to Mindanao, which is one of the provinces that's having, like, huge insurgent areas later, and just hand them over. Here you go. I bought this legally, I transported it legally, and now here it is. You know, the only requirement if you're flying with a firearm is that you don't have your firearm and the ammunition in the same case. I can I can have a suitcase full of you know two two three rounds and an AR and fly them all and just say I'm going to a shooting competition. It's perfectly legal, <laughs> and so they're not hard. I think that the end of it is like you don't even have to be that nefarious to try to transport them. So what are the relative cost of guns like in trade? Like what is a AR fifteen worth? Yeah, Ooh. since AR-15 especially seems seems to be the it's it's the gun that the press seems to care the most about, or is or should we not be caring as much about the AR-15? Is there another gun that's more profitable? Well, so I think that so I think these are two different things. Like, well, I think it depends on what what we mean by profitable and why we should care. 
So the AR-15 mm. is profitable, valuable, popular to talk about, whatever you want to say, because it has a few unique characteristics. It's super light. It can handle very high capacity magazines. It has very little recoil. It has a really high cyclic rate. You can kill a lot of people in very little time with very little effort. And so you know, that's why the AR-15 gets a lot of, of play, just because of the, the destructive capability in the bang for the buck that it has. I mean, it's a, it's a super light weapon if you pick it up. You can two two three rounds, which are which is what it fires, or five five six, depending on what standard you're talking about, are really light. Like if you look at why the gun was really adopted, was that in Vietnam, the you know the soldiers, the foot soldiers who were marching through the jungle, the M1 and the M14 were too heavy, and it took too long. Like and the rounds were too heavy. When they started to de- get the M16, which is developed exactly on the AR platform. It's a militarized version of the AR platform. You know, soldiers could carry nearly four times as many rounds as they could for the other weapons with less effort. You know, they, they can fire even in non-automatic mode as fast as you can move your finger, it fires. And so why we talk about the AR is because it's, it's light, it's really able, easy to move with, and you can fire a lot. Um, it's not the most common gun that is traded. Handguns are the most common that are that are traded both on the black market and also the most common gun that you'll find in this country. But a lot of, I think there's two prongs. One is the production. You know, like there's just more handguns made per capita and more people make them. Um, and the AR was not available for civilian purchase until 2004, which is a thing, you know, so they're rare. And also there was, Colt had a patent on the gas cooling system, which allows it to be so light for a while. And so it's it's only been recently that you've had more players really enter the market in making them. But they're valuable, I would say, because the U.S. is one of very, very few places you can buy them. Okay, and what is what do some of these guns cost? I'm I'm trying to think about if I'm going to trade like how much compact value I'm holding. So I think like cost-wise, you can go to the store here, like you can go to a a firearms dealer and you can get an AR for under $300 easily. Um, like a basic model. Like you can go they're they're not expensive at all. And so I think that's where placing value on them is interesting in that, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what their comparison is, whether it's like one AR is worth X amount of people or X amount of pounds of, Uh but they're really cheap to buy in the U S but they're very scarce everywhere else. And so I think that's why it makes them very attractive to be used in trafficking because they're desirable because of the things there's light, you can kill a lot of people really quickly. Um, they also look scary. I mean, that's <laughs> there is some of that to it too. Um, I was going to say they have like the sort of the cachet of being this. This is a weapon, right? It's a military grade weapon, is what it's often referred to. But they're really easy and really cheap to get here, and it's and that's one of the the issues when we talk about them in value is that why excuse me why so many get trafficked is it's super cheap to buy them. 
and I'm and, guessing then there's a lot on the market as well. Yeah, and and that's you know it's something that if we look at just market principles, like so from 1994 to 2004, you couldn't buy them, and there's nothing that drives a market up like saying you can't have it. Yeah, and so once once the ban was lifted. You know, people just started buying them like crazy. And then once the patent expired, manufacturers started making them like crazy. So there's a lot out there right now. And that's also kept prices really, they're also really, they're made out of really cheap materials. I mean, they're plastic. They're not, you know, they're not one of these hand engraved silver inlaid firearms that you see that are works of art. You know, they're not like the shotgun I have that was engraved and given to me as a gift. You know, they're, they're plastic and metal that are made to be as light as possible. And so they're cheap. They're cheap to make. They're cheap to buy. And so with cartels like Mexican cartels, we're aware that they're essentially transnational criminal organizations, at least the big ones, where they're not just selling drugs. They're also moving people and kidnapping people and trafficking in guns. So how do you view some of the way that can work with these organizations? So the ease of the gun laws that we have here make it something that's very simple for you know, cartels, international crime to use as a currency, a transaction currency, and often more valuable than money because dollars are easier to trace than firearms. And it's, you know, if you want to buy drugs or you want to buy people and you pay with dollars, like, you know, those dollars came from somewhere versus when it's a firearm you have no way of knowing where it came from and so they've become very valuable because of the stringency of gun laws anywhere else and so they're, they're worth much more than the two to three hundred dollars that someone in the u.s would pay for them so kind of like the illicit market version of comparative advantage yeah no that's i think that's a perfect way to, to put it is that you know what are you good at if country a is good at growing drugs and it's really low cost for them to do it and the u.s is good at buying guns there's your advantage you know if it's really easy to move people because you have people who want to go um you know that is that's what you're going to use that's what you're going to exploit and so it makes it so that you know it's in the u.s it's both hard to traffic people and to create drugs i mean maybe if you're out like in a trailer and cooking meth, that's a whole different thing. But, you know, it's, it's people and drugs are harder to get organically in the U S but drugs are really easy. I mean, our guns, guns are really easy, not drugs. People and drugs are hard. Guns are, guns are easy. And so it makes it a valuable currency because of how stringent gun laws are everywhere else. And to go back to the comparative advantage thing, we went in other countries, particularly um, ones in the global South, you do have a lot of people. And people are easy to get, but then with arms manufacture or sort of the arms control that the governments of those variety countries have, I can see why that would be difficult. And I'm presuming, again, knowing very little about uh, having never like actually bought my own bullets or whatnot, that bullet manufacture is relatively easy as compared to gun manufacture. Yeah. No, it's really easy to make bullets. I mean, you could make them in your garage. And that's, I think that's the other thing is that, you know, like, the the making the round the bullet whatever you want to call it like that's the easiest part to do and the products to do it are easy to get anywhere 
And so it's, it's actually getting the weapon that's the hardest part in most places. And I, and I would imagine that just because, like, I've seen, like, doomsday prepper videos and whatnot on the internet of people, like, making bullets, it seems like that's a pretty easy process, whereas, like, constructing an AR-15 is not something that the average person could do. No. No, that's a without, lot. Like, you would need a machine shop and specialty knowledge. and. Though there is 3D printing. There is. But those, I think one of the big things that comes from the, like, A, it's a big investment for 3D printing. But... Two, the reliability of firearms made in the U.S. is some of the things that's second to none. You know, it's going to be really hard to even 3D print a firearm that meets the same standard. I and so this this to me, I think, is when we when we've explained, particularly one of our most recent podcasts, which was on cartel violence, too, is so interesting to me because it's then guns that are in country that have been maybe transferred from the USA to Honduras mm-hmm. that are then used in gang or sort of paramilitary violence that then spurns the desire of people who live within these communities to want to then migrate, which then opens them up for further vulnerability. So the very thing that might be paying for some people to be trafficked is then the trigger, no pun intended, for other people then to be put into exploitative or trafficking situations because you see a rise of of sort of gang violence or just violent crime within country. Well, I think this is something that when we talk about globalization and we talk about like third, fourth, fifth, sixth, however many order effects we want to go, is that, you know, we, as Americans, sometimes we seem to continue to think about ourselves in some exceptional bubble. You know, like these are American laws, like we have freedom and we have the Second Amendment and we have you know, all of these great right to bear arms, to keep arms, which means I should be able to go buy whatever I want, whatever I want, whenever I want. We don't really think about how you know those actions can influence downstream consequences. You know, and I think even you know, Chicago is a great example of this. Is that you know people often talk about you know oh Chicago has all these tight gun laws and yet look they still have tons of gun crime. So clearly laws don't work. Well, most of the guns used in crimes in Chicago are traced back to gun shops in Indiana and Missouri. And there's no, like, there's very little restrictions there. And there's no restrictions on actually carrying guns across straight lo- state lines. And even if there are, there's really no way to enforce it, much like there's no way to enforce the guns that are bought in, in Florida getting to Trinidad and Tobago. I think we need to, when we talk about guns, realize that you know, we're not some exceptional island that is isolated from the rest of the world and that all the guns that we buy are kept in the lawful hands of those who buy them. And one of the things that I've thought about after being at Corbell and taking a couple of security classes is the difference in the, the national security perspective in how the gun debate goes to where with national security, it's all about mitigation. Like it's not, we can't do anything, so let's not try. Oh, we people are going to get in, so let's not have borders or anything like that. It's Let's try to make things harder. Let's try to lessen the chances somebody can blow up a plane. And now when we have this kind of extreme approach to like immigration vetting, which is overdoing it, but yet with a gun debate, it's still, well, you know, people are going to commit suicide anyway, or we just can't do anything to stop mass shooting. So 
let's not try or when they do come up with something it's armed teachers but the main point being i just find it amazing that mitigation and lessening the odds of of gun violence happening is not something that gets into the big debate it doesn't surprise me but it makes no sense well, and I, th- I, I completely agree with you, especially on that last sentence. Like, it doesn't surprise me, but it makes no sense. The Second Amendment is one of those things that I always feel very wary of treading into, but I feel like it's always important to bring into these discussions, too, that you know, there's, there's more and more emotion that seems to get attached to the Second Amendment than actual understanding of what it is. And I think that if we look at it from a more historical legalistic you know approach that it wasn't it was 2008 that the first time the supreme court actually upheld the fact that there was an individual right to bear arms you know and that that i think was a huge turning point in this discussion that you know so it's only been a decade for all the rest of our country the second amendment has been interpreted as the right for militias to exist and the right for you know people to be part of a well-regulated militia uh, and which if we think about in our practicality of modern life, like the national guard structure has really taken over the militia function that was necessary in 1800 when we were expanding West. But you know, the, the emotion that's evoked by it and the, the emotion that's really driven by a lot of the fear mongering by gun manufacturers who want to stay in office by organizations like the NRA that want to keep making money from gun manufacturers. So they need to continue to fear monger to make it feel like there's some innate urgency that if you don't own a gun, you're not going to be safe is, you know, it, I understand it, but it also makes no sense. It makes no sense with the way we approach anything else. And if we look at how many people guns kill a year that are completely unnecessary, you know, if it was anything else, we would be having extreme vetting like we do on on immigrants, which is a ridiculous thing because they don't kill people. You know, and I think another sort of story to highlight how much this doesn't make sense just bringing it back even to our, our, our own country, you know, in Vegas, when we had the shooting, which was done by a legally purchased AR-15 with legally purchased accessories. And, you know, we, we lost more than 50 Americans and injured hundreds others, you know, in 10 minutes of shooting to, to put it in perspective in Fallujah in Iraq, you know, when we were Marines in a over six week period of that battle, we lost close to 50 Marines and had a few hundred uh, wounded in action. And that caused the Department of Defense to do this like full stop. We need to reevaluate what we did because the lo- the numbers of lives lost were unacceptable. And yet, you know, in 10 minutes when that happens on American soil, you have people like Bill O'Reilly coming up and saying, well, that's the price of freedom. And so I think that there's there's this huge cognitive dissonance around the gun conversation that we have in this country that we refute because of all of the popular passion that's drilled up about the second amendment. We refuse to actually talk about it rationally. We don't talk about it as a security issue. You know, we refuse people put these blinders on and like cover their ears and are like, la la la, I can't hear you. 
when you start talking about how it's U.S. guns that are used by the Mexican cartels. It's U.S. guns that are causing deaths in Trinidad and Tobago. It's U.S. guns that are being used by terrorists in the Philippines to try to bring down an allied government. You know, these are these are things that we've gotten so passionate about that we refuse to actually look at the rational arguments about why we need to have conversations around regulation and control. Well, with guns that end up in other countries and other fights, uh, what what's the national security discussion about that or the military discussion? Is, is there one? In this country? Among, um, among security people? Well, I, mean, I think it's something we all want to talk about, but because of the Dickey Amendment, no federal money can go towards studying it. And so we can talk about it. I, mean, I think this is a thing that we can we can talk about. And all of these things are based off of anecdotes and stories and, and what we see happening. But there's no way to actually get large scale data on this because it's illegal for Congress to appropriate funds to study it. And so the Department of Defense can't actually talk about it, like can't formally study it as part of the national security agreement. You know, the Department of Homeland Security can't legally track it. The CDC can't study gun violence. I mean, these are things that, because of the Dickey Amendment, are illegal to do. Which is which is crazy to me, because I think kind of what we're getting at here is that when we're talking about violence, or when we're talking about gun-related violence, the reason why this is on a human trafficking podcast is that gun violence doesn't just impact sort of people who are direct victims of it. It's that the existence of sort of the, I don't want to say like the machine of gun manufacture, but sort of the firearms complex, the industrial firearms complex, and and the selling and transition of those um, across state lines, and I don't mean states within the U.S., I mean states as in nation states, this has a direct impact on a number of human rights issues and factors. And so I think sort of that non-conversation about how, you know, the selling of guns ends up being something that people in human rights, specifically people in the trafficking world, should be talking about. And I don't think we really have ever, except for just that, the fact that because a lot of our legislation comes from firearm sale legislation, for example, the United Nations Convention Against Organized Crime and the protocols, where it's literally, okay, no... No selling of humans, no selling of humans, also no selling of guns. And it's the same language used for all as if these these things are interchangeable. We don't talk about how the existence of an AR-15 and its ability to move from the U.S. to like Zimbabwe can then result in child slavery in Canada. Or how just a plethora of cheap guns and older guns worldwide that are pretty light end up in the hands of say child soldiers yeah which is a direct human trafficking thing or again used as a coercion tool or a tool of force to then traffic more people because i think we've lost track of how many like stories and anecdotes and things and narratives that we featured on here where it's been i had direct violence threatened against me either from someone with a gun or from like you know we know a cartel had access to guns and they said if i didn't go with them you know, I would be shot and killed. It's um, it's strange to me that this isn't more of a conversation. 
I mean, and I think that this is something that the reason it's not is you, you have a cultural and a legal side to why it's not. Yeah. You know, you have the cultural side. You know, as we said at the beginning, we all grew up in gun-toting households, for lack of a better way to put it. But, yeah. it. but it was never seen as a as a bad, you know. But I think that – so there's a lot of people, especially a generation – above us who just don't really think about it. So it's not part of that conversation. And then there's groups like the NRA that are a powerful enough lobby to have things like the Dickey Amendment stay. And so it can't be studied. And, you know, once you remove and like, so yes, there's, there's a, always a possibility for private funding to step in, but without a federal, uh, the ability to study this on a federal level, it's going to be really hard to raise it to the level of national security when a federally funded department isn't allowed to talk about it. And I, I think, too, Seth, maybe something that you brought up is quite interesting. The old guns. So the number of guns that have just been present on the market. So it's not just that there are guns being manufactured now that are open to sort of these loopholes or this open liability. It's that there's just a huge backlog of guns that are available just sort of go out into the world, if you will. Yeah, that was one of the things pointed out in a Peter Singer's Children at War is there's just a lot of old lightweight guns and it makes coming up with uh, small militia armies pretty easy to do. And the fact that trafficking rates do go up around times of conflict or, or war than sort of like very early on in post-war reconstruction where you have a lot of people moving around and I presume a lot of weapons that are just sort of left behind. Not so, not so much your what? What did you call it, Kai? A, a giant flying gun? Right, I feel yeah. like I feel like we kept track of all of those. <laughs> they yeah. probably all made their way back to the states, but I, I could see how smaller artillery items get mm-hmm. left behind or turn up missing. Or well, and it's hard with. I mean, even like DDR programs that exist, it's really hard to keep track of. You know, one of the things they'll say, like, "Well, you have to come turn in a gun to participate." Well. We don't have records of what happened to them. Like in theory, they went back to the UN and were melted down in some of the programs if that was part of the mandate. If not, if that wasn't explicitly in the mandate, like we have no idea what happens to them once they're turned in. And can you can you articulate for our listeners what a DDR program so is? Yeah, so they're um, disarmament programs. So after at the end of a of a conflict, there are programs to you know, disarm and reintegrate former fighters. And there's often requirements to participate in these. And some of them is a, a proof of participating in the conflict. And so they say, if you bring us the weapon that you used in the conflict, then we will be able to, you know, you can participate in the program. And you're supposed to turn it in because this whole this disarmament side of it. And they often just guns get left hanging out in a cache somewhere because there's no mandate what to do with them when they're done. And so now you have more of these old guns just floating around for whoever wants to pick them up and use them. So internationally, uh, what other thoughts do you have? Um, well, I mean, I think that one, the biggest thing we need to look at is closing the loophole of guns being able to just go away once they get purchased. And I think that's that's one of the biggest things that we need to look at. We need to start regulating and controlling them and keeping track of where they go. Because these are 
weapons that are designed to kill people, which means they're very easy to coerce people with, to continue conflict, to contribute to very nefarious actions. And so I think internationally, when we look at it, you know, we need to look at this as a international security issue and realize that it doesn't stop at our borders, that as much as we want to say that you know, the Second Amendment is our right, you know, our actions impact the rest of the world. And we need to start talking about what our responsibility is and the role that our lax laws play in promoting and continuing trafficking. And I, I think what's interesting here, too, is that, again, this is like the slippery slope of almost supply chain management of there might be people not intending. So the, the local arms dealer in Kentucky who's selling things at a trade show and sells like 50 handguns. He doesn't. And, and I don't think it's their fault and they're not trying to be nefarious. But that's why we need to elevate this conversation beyond just it being about what are my rights as an American to own guns? Yeah. You know, what are... What is our responsibility towards international security as the largest manufacturer and procurer of firearms in the world? Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying is that, you know, so guy at trade show sells me 50 handguns. I then go home and sell the vast majority of them as a lot on the Internet, which is illegal. But, you know, it's easily done. I sell them, then they make their way overseas. And then suddenly I'm complicit in trafficking. Well, it's not. It's not even illegal to sell them online. You look at like Gun Trader, it's perfectly legal. Just depends on how you market them. Well, I was thinking that there was no like 80 middleman between me and maybe like a cartel that I was getting directly online and being like, you know, go for it. (laughs) You know, I'm all for a good coup. You know, (laughs) I got student loans, whatever you need. Guy who's in a military encampment somewhere in the woods, like you just take them. But yeah, but like, and so, but even, but it's not, you know, the initial seller's fault. I'm certain certain that the people working in the factories and the manufacturers themselves aren't thinking, oh, I'm going to, this is going to result in child slavery. Right. But that's what we need to reframe this conversation to, you know, as a country, be thinking about what are, you know, these third, fourth, fifth order effects of how easy it is to get them. Yeah, it's, this is, this is rough. Cause we've, I mean, we've had almost the exact same conversation talking about sort of like cheap goods and fast fashion and coffee and things like that, that this demand to have as much of it as humanly possible for as cheap as humanly possible results in trafficking. But that's on our end of us purchasing goods. I think this is a U.S. base now of exportation of goods that's a little bit different. But definitely, I think you can trace it out. And the, But the only academic I can think of who's done like sort of direct tracing of, of number of guns and things like that is P.W. Singer. Yeah, that's the only one I can. It's just it's so hard to to do. Which means we need to repeal the Dickey Amendment, too, so we can actually study it. I did not know that that was a thing. I've learned so much today. I, <laughs> I, I legitimately didn't know that that was a thing. It's a dumb thing, but it's a thing. It's a thing. Oops. It's perhaps my biggest frustration with guns is that I would like to look at the data and I would like to look at reports. But instead, I see people who already have decided what their ideology is, who are just finding studies that confirm their biases rather than maybe we could do this and it would lower gun deaths by 10% or something like that. But even trying to Google it would be frustrating <laughs> because it's such a polemic issue. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's sort of this, as, as Kai articulated at the beginning, it's this fear that any sort of conversation about guns is to then be directly challenging the second amendment and then so it's it's they you're burning 
down a fundamental American right, but it's it, that's not the conversation. It's just, I think, maybe how the narrative has been framed. Which is why everyone should go and look at Veterans for Gun Reform. Hashtag, too. Hashtag, Veterans for Gun Reform, and they should follow, follow Kylie and Hunter on Twitter. You can give me, a, yeah, all of, my, all of the, the handles to follow will be included in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, you should apparently immediately write to everyone that you know in power to repeal the Dickey Act, which I didn't know was a thing. And now I feel like an incredibly bad international relations scholar <laughs> for not knowing about. Also, the fact that it's the Dickey Act is just it's a it's yeah. a pun waiting to happen. And I love those. Um <laughs> But I think I think and I'm Kai, thank you so much for coming on because you've articulated so much more than, than Seth and I ever could about guns in the US and just sort of the how 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 this spirals out, you know? And and we've talked about sort of post military action and how that raises trafficking. We've talked about UN blue helmets and, and things of that nature, but I think to directly talk about how something that is manufactured and produced in the US and because of US policies and culture then directly impacts trafficking in other countries, which then can directly impact trafficking in our country is, is, is very unique and interesting. And maybe one day when we all don't have 8,000 jobs and 8,000 things to do, we should, we should write an article or something on it. I'm good with that. I was going to say, we can put it, put it, put it on our to-do list. That's already eight pages long and like features like Kai and her maze and Corgi taking over Senate. Seth becoming like head of Thorn because you could do it so much better than Ashton Kutcher could. People can't see it, but we're laughing. Except for the fundraising parts. Well, that means good things now when you snap. Yeah, kids snap. I learned that from my students. Yeah, Kyle Ann is also a phenomenal teacher. I got to sit in on one of her classes, and it's it's the first time in my life I've seen a room full of full of young people. Just every time she talked, they would just raise their hands and snap for her. Like, yeah, girl. Like if if there could have been foam fingers that are appropriate <laughs> to raise in a classroom setting, you would have had just like people doing the wave. It was it was it was awesome. It was very precious. It was just the sea of people who were like, "I want to learn about CDAW and other forms of like legal involvement." So, yeah, makes me feel good. About hear that for another talk. I was like, "Hear that the liberal academics? They're coming for you." They are. I'm here to bring it down. No. <laughs> thank you so much and for continuing to do the good work yeah thanks for coming on we try yep. My all, right. Pleasure. all right well in that case goodbye everybody keep keep the faith bye right. bye this has been speaker for the living for extended notes and sources visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com